All right. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 16, Romans 1, 16. The Apostle Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. For God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the, the creature rather than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think today about why we do missions, our our minds go out to um, the the six members of, of Redeemer that are now in Manchester. Father, why are they there? Why do we send mission teams to Manchester, England. Why is Caleb Fair in Brazil right now? Father, why do we organize and plan our lives in such a way that we would seek to minister and serve and to spread the gospel wherever we are at? Father, why do we do missions? I pray this morning that we would see from your word that missions is not an option, but it's actually built into the very fabric of the foundation of the Christian faith. That if we believe what we say we believe, then we will be missionaries. 
So, Father, I pray that you would penetrate our hearts this morning, that you would wake us up from materialism and a self-absorption in this culture and in our, in our own lives, and that we would be willing to take bold risks for the sake of the gospel. So, God, use this message this morning to, to do that. I pray these things in your name. Amen. So, we're not supposed to be here right now. You realize that, right? That yesterday, May 21st, 2011, Christ was supposed to return. Or at least the rapture was supposed to happen, right? However, the details of that are supposed to work out. Um, people aren't real sure. But we, the bottom line is, it's now May 22nd, everywhere in the world. And we are not supposed to be sitting here. Um, now, I by no means endorse Harold Camping or the teaching that he was espousing or anything like that. However, this morning as we talk about why do we do missions, that has some relevance in a couple different ways. Because for the past two or three years, Harold Camping, who's the guy who started that whole thing, made this prediction, right? Um, supposedly using scripture to do it. His followers, campingites, if you want to call them, have been on a mission. They have quit their jobs. I read an article in, on MSNBC a couple days ago about a family who's, who's uh, the, the, the mom quit her job as a nurse so she could get in a bus and drive across the country. And on the side of the bus is this huge May 21st, the end of the world, Judgment Day, you know, May, May 21, 2011. She quit her job to do that. They spent all of the money in their children's college funds. Because why? What's the point, right? If the end of the world is May 21st and your kids are 14 years old, there's no use for a college fund. They spent it all. Why do those who call themselves Christians go on mission? Why did we send a team to Manchester, England? Why is, church, why is Redeemer Church a church-planting church? Two weeks ago, Jim preached on why we plant churches, right? Most of what I say today will be just what he said last week, or two weeks ago. Because you see... Planting churches is not separate from missions. You do missions in order to start new churches, right? So, um, really, this is really the same message that, that, that Jim preached with a twist. So, the question is, why do we do missions? Why does Harold Camping and his followers do missions? Why do we do missions? Why is the Christian faith a missionary faith? My argument this morning... The obvious text to go to is the one that Brett read earlier, Matthew 28, right? Why do we do missions? I could certainly stand up here and say because Christ commands it. We close our Bibles, go home, right? Christ commands us to be missionaries, to make disciples. That is totally true, and we have said that over and over and over again at Redeemer. So that's just a given, okay? We are commanded to make disciples. But this morning, I want to take a little bit different approach, and I want to argue that the reason we do missions is because missionary activity and the, 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 the practice of taking the gospel to the nations is actually built into the very fabric of the Christian faith. 
That if we believe the foundational truths of the Christian faith, we have no other option but to be missionaries. Now that may not make a whole lot of sense right now, but I hope that by the end of the message you'll see what I mean by that. I'm going to do this in a way that that I think makes sense. Um, we're going to look at the book of Romans. We're going to do a quick survey of the book of Romans. Because, as I just read in Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then, Paul spends the next 15 and a half chapters unpacking this gospel. So I'm going to argue that reading through the book of Romans and studying the book of Romans, we are going to come to the conclusion that this gospel that Paul is preaching, if we believe it, it will drive us and force us to be missionaries. We're going to start with Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The first reason why we do missions, why Redeemer Church does missions, is because all people will face judgment, will face God in judgment. That's what yesterday was all about, right? Judgment day. Now, of course, like I said before, I'm not saying that I espouse the teachings of Harold Camping. However, we would agree that there is coming a day where all people will stand before God in judgment. You and me and every person who has ever lived will face God in judgment. Romans 1.18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Now what is this telling us? This is telling us that everyone in the world who has ever existed has known God. That's called general revelation. Everyone in the world who has ever existed has a knowledge of God. Now, is that knowledge of God 100% accurate? No, it is not. In fact, we see that the knowledge that we have is given to us by the things that have been made. So when we see the creation of the world, when everyone in the world looks at creation, they are seeing the handprint, the fingerprint of God. And they know something about God just by creation. They know, Paul says, namely, his eternal power and his divine nature. They know when they see the creation that somebody, some huge being somewhere in the universe has created this world. That's what people know about God. And if there was no such thing as sin and the fall, we would know that God perfectly in the things that have been made. But the fact is, since the fall, Genesis 2, there has been a sin curse, right? And so now when we perceive the creation of the world, we don't see it as it rightly is. The creation is not as it rightly it should be, right? Things are, are diminishing, things are dying, things are decaying. So we don't, we don't see things rightly, and the things that we see aren't the way they're supposed to be. And so our knowledge of God is incomplete, it's not sufficient. And in fact, Paul says, we even take the knowledge that we do have, 
and we suppress it. Because, because of the sin curse of Adam and Eve, we now suppress that knowledge of God because we don't want to be under the authority of this divine being. So, what does all of that basic theology tell us about missions? It tells us that we do missions because all people are under God's wrath. All people suppress this knowledge. And all people, everyone who has ever existed, will face this God in judgment. And they will be judged. And they will be condemned because they have suppressed this truth and this knowledge about God. All people everywhere are going to be held accountable to God. In fact, in this passage that we read, 18 through 32, we have this language of God giving people up or God giving people over. So you have this idea of people suppressing the knowledge of God, turning towards the creation, worshiping the creation, and God says, go ahead. I give you up. I give you over. And, and every time God does that, we get farther and farther away from the original intent of the creation until we get to the point where there is actually worship of ourselves. Verse 26, this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves a due penalty for their error. That's self-worship. That's the essence of that kind of behavior. Worshipping ourselves. We worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. So the first reason, according to Romans, that I think we see, is the reason that we do missions is because all people are under the wrath of God. Because all people in the world have a knowledge of God and suppress it. Now this is true for those of us who've grown up in the Christian culture and have heard the gospel over and over and over again. And then, but the question then becomes, well, what about the people in the most remote parts of Asia who have never heard the gospel, Caleb? You're telling me that everyone in the world knows God and will be held accountable because they have not worshipped and served the Creator. I'm, I'm telling you, yes. Okay, so that means that people in the most remote parts of the world who have no access to the Scriptures, no access to the Christian faith, are going to be judged? I'm telling you, yes. That is why we do missions. That's the first reason. Because those people are going to be held accountable for this knowledge of God. And the fact is, this knowledge of God is not sufficient for them. To be saved. Which means, as we'll get to later, there are millions of people who are destined for condemnation and judgment and hell unless someone goes to them. We do missions because all people will face God in judgment. The second reason we do missions we see in Romans chapter 3. Turn over just a couple pages to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. We do missions because a person can only be justified by faith alone. So everyone is condemned. That's the argument in Romans 1 and 2 and the first half of 3. 
You read Romans 1, 2, the first half of 3. Paul is making the argument the Jews are condemned because they had the law and, didn't, and couldn't keep it. The Gentiles are condemned because they're a law to themselves. They have a conscience. They know what's right and wrong, but they don't even obey their own conscience. So Paul, when he gets to chapter 3, says, Therefore, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is what he says, in verse tw- starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised, that's Jews, by faith. And the uncircumcised, that's Gentiles, through faith. It's the same thing. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So we see the foundational teaching of justification by faith demands that we be missionaries. If all people everywhere are going to be held accountable and all people everywhere are going to be judged and are under the wrath of God and suppress the truth about God and worship the creation rather than the creator and the only hope for them is faith in Christ, then we have no other option. We have to tell them about Christ. It's built in to the fabric of the foundation of the Christian faith. If we believe that we are justified this morning, if you're sitting there and you have saving faith, and you believe that Christ is Lord and that you have forsaken your own desires in, in an effort to follow Him and, and to obey Christ, you are justified because someone told you the gospel. That's the only way. It's built into the foundation of our Christian faith that we must take this gospel message because, Paul makes it very clear, a person is only justified by faith apart from works in the law. Faith in what? Faith in whom? Faith in Christ. And people in the most remote parts of the world and people in your backyard have never heard the gospel. Which demands that we be missionaries. Every one of us. That's why we do missions. So the first reason we do missions is because all people will face God in judgment. The second reason we do missions is because a person can only be justified by faith alone. Paul says in Romans 3, God is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. That was a new message. We don't catch the weight of that because we live 2,000 years after this. But to say that Yahweh is the God of the Gentiles, that was scandalous. You're telling me, Paul, that the Old Testament God 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who established David and Solomon and, and, and the, the, the city of Jerusalem, that's the God of the Gentiles? Paul says yes. In fact, we're going to see that that's been the plan all along. But what is the result of this faith? Because I'm arguing that built into the foundation of the Christian faith is the demand and the, the, the motivation for missions. Well, as we read on in Romans, we see the results of this justification. Okay? If we're justified by faith alone, what are the benefits? What are the results? What does that look like in our lives? We're going to run through chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 real quick. In chapter 5, we are justified, right? And in chapter 5, believers have peace with God. The curse of sin that has reigned since Adam is broken. Because remember, we suppress the truth. Because of the sin curse, you and I are born sinners we take knowledge of God, we suppress it. But in chapter 5, we see that even though we are dead in Adam, we are made alive in Christ. Romans 6, we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Romans 7, we are released from bondage to the law and now live life according to the Spirit. And even though there is an internal war going on in each of us between the flesh and the spirit, we are confident that Christ's work will be accomplished. Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We no longer live life according to the flesh. The Holy Spirit now dwells with us. We have the promise of resurrection. We are adopted sons and daughters of God. We have the hope of redemption. We can persevere through life-altering suffering because the Holy Spirit intercedes for us to God so that God's will is always accomplished for our good and for His glory. This is all in Romans 8. We can rest assured that those whom God has foreknown, He is predestined. And those whom he has predestined, he has called. Those whom he has called, he has justified. And those whom he has justified, he will glorify. God will complete the salvation he has started. And how do we know that to be true, Romans 8 tells us? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. All of these promises, Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, all of these promises belong to God's people, Jews and Gentiles, and they are only effective when Christ is embraced by faith. If justification is by faith alone, then all of those saving benefits, all of those promises, including all of the promises made to Israel, are only effective if we embrace Christ by faith. And those are foundational truths to the Christian faith. Everything that I just read in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 is foundational to the Christian faith. So if we believe those things, if we cherish those promises, and if we, if we, if we rest and hope in God in the midst of trials and suffering, how could we not take that to the nations? Those promises are for God's people. Jews and Gentiles. 
So we see the very nature of the Christian faith demands that we be missionary minded. So, we do missions because all people are under the wrath of God. We do missions because the only hope for those people is faith in Christ. That Christ died for their sins. And that message must be taken to them. But the third reason we do missions is because we are motivated to love people the way God loves us. Look in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9 verse 1. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, when you read through Romans, and you get to the end of chapter 8, if Paul had stopped writing after chapter 8 and finished the book, it would be glorious. <laughs> Romans 1 through 8 is awesome. Some of my favorite passages in, in, in those chapters in all the scripture. If he would have stopped at chapter 8 and ended on all things we are more than conquerors, right? Neither death nor life, angels nor demons, things present, things to come. None of these things separate us from the love of God. Amen. Close the book. Be encouraged. Leave. But he doesn't. In fact, Romans 9 Paul's in anguish. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, why does he have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart? It's because all of those promises that he just mentioned are only obtained, are only found in Christ and his Jewish brothers and sisters have rejected Christ. Christ, their Messiah, their Jewish Messiah, they have rejected Him. And Paul says, I am in great sorrow and unceasing anguish. And he even says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen. You see the heart of Paul. He longs for his brothers and sisters to know this Christ. His love for them is overwhelming. It's bringing him to the point of personal uh, anguish and, and just intense, intense suffering. Because he longs to see people embrace Christ. And he says, why? Because theirs is the glory. Theirs is the adoption. Theirs is the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises. All of these things belong to them. But they have rejected the means whereby those things are made effective. So the third reason we do missions is because, just like Paul, I hope we are motivated to love people the way God has loved us. 
I mean, how could we sit back in our comfortable lifestyles when most of the world has no idea who Jesus is? We give a lot of lip service to love, don't we? We give a lot of lip service to loving our neighbor as ourselves and, and loving uh, people as God has loved us. Well, the rubber meets the road when it comes to missions. Because the ultimate act of love is to take the gospel, to share the gospel, to preach the gospel to people so that they might come to know and serve and love this Messiah. Paul knew it. He was in anguish because his brothers didn't believe it. The world's population is approximately 7 billion. Approximately 7 billion people on the planet. In his book Radical, David Platt says this, According to the most liberal estimates, approximately one-third of the world is Christian. Now, here's the catch. These estimates include all who identify themselves as Christian, whether religiously, socially, or politically. Okay? Likely, not all of them are actually followers of Christ. But, even if we assume they are, that still leaves 4.5 billion people who, if the gospel is true, at this moment are separated from God in their sin and will spend eternity in hell. 4.5 billion who are separated from Christ. And I'm going to go so far as to say most of those 4.5 billion have no idea who Jesus is. It's not that they have heard the gospel and rejected it. It's that they have never heard. Millions of those people don't even have scriptures in their own language. So it's not even possible, really, to communicate the gospel to them in, in a way that's going to be effective long term. I mean, how can we really be comfortable? If we say we love people the way God loves us, and the way God loves them, the question is, are we involved in missions? This is an overwhelming task. But it is the task that God has given the church. David Platt goes on to say, Every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. We owe Christ to the world, to the least person, to the greatest person, to the richest person and to the poorest person, from the best person and the worst person. We are in debt to the nations. Encompassed with this debt, though, in our contemporary approach to missions, we have subtly taken ourselves out from under the weight of a lost and dying world, wrung our hands in pious concern, and said, I'm sorry, I'm just not called to that. And that is so, I mean, some of you sitting there right now, I'm sure, throughout this message, are saying to yourself, I'm not really called. I'm not really called to missions. And that is a lie. I just want you, I just want to say that up front. That is a lie that our contemporary, Americanized, modern Christian culture has fed us that we are not called to missions. I just want you to erase that, that thinking and that statement from your, from your memory and from your life. We are all called to missions. That's going to look differently for different people, okay? 
But you are called to be a missionary. Somehow, in some way, you are called to be a missionary. Because remember what I said before. Missions, the goal, one of the goals of missions is to plant churches. Somehow we, I think we, we, dis, we have a disconnect here in the way we think about missions. When we think about missions, we think about maybe going to another country um, and just kind of like walking through the street, just like preaching the gospel, right? Like this is mission, just preaching the gospel. Ah, and people are just like, well, like, you're kind of like the prophet in the wilderness, right? You're just going to go over there and be a prophet in the wilderness. People are just going to flock to you. And yeah, that is, people have done missions that way. People do missions that way. That's a necessary aspect of missions, I suppose. But you have to always remember that missions, that even that activity, that practice, is always meant to build churches. Not physically, not buildings. I mean, build spiritual Churches, so that God would save his people and there would be a people gathered in a particular location to set up a local church. So there would be elders appointed, there would be teaching, the teaching of the word, and the right um, practice of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That is the goal. So the question is, if you're going to be involved in missions, how do you get involved in church planting? You're part of a church plant here, but you say, okay, okay, they're telling me to be involved in missions. I can't really go um, overseas and do this thing. So first I would say, how do you know you can't do that? Okay, that sh- You should never just say, oh, I can't do that. I'm, I'm going to challenge you. Maybe you can. Some of you should. Um, but the next challenge is, okay, church, church planting here in the States. That's missions. I mean, right up the road, two hours in Chicago, you have um, just draw a circle, a five-mile radius in the city of Chicago, and you've got hundreds of thousands of people from nations all over the world living in Chicago. And there's not a gospel-centered church. You have those areas all over Chicago. The U of I has one of the highest percentages of international students. Students coming from, I don't forget how many countries. Quinn? 137 countries. Represented at U of I, I mean, in our backyard, you got missions coming to us. So, if we love people the way Paul loves people, are we going to be involved in missions? Let me just ask you this. When was the last time you wept over the lost people in your life? Paul is in great sorrow unceasing anguish because he longs to see his brothers embrace Christ and receive this all the benefits and all the promises of God and he is weeping when's the last time you wept for the lost I've been reading uh, David Brainerd's Life and Diary I read it every year Um, I just happen to be reading it again in recent days, and uh, I just want to read a couple, just a couple passages from his diary. David Brainerd was a missionary uh, in the 1700s. Um, he was a missionary to the Native Americans. Okay, so he lived in America. It was America was brand new, right? Um, Said so this is before 1776, so it officially hadn't even become a you know a nation or, or whatever. Um, but David Brainerd 
was living in America, and he was a missionary in the wilderness of New England, okay? Because all of New England was wilderness at that time. So he would just go into the woods and find Native Americans and preach the gospel to them. He died when he was 29 of tuberculosis. This is from his, his life and diary. This is on April 6th, I forget the year, 1940, or 19, 1746 or something like that. He says, I found myself willing, if God should so order it, to suffer banishment from my native land among the heathen, that I might do something for their salvation in distresses and deaths of any kind. Then God gave me to wrestle earnestly for others, for the kingdom of Christ in the world, and for dear Christian friends. I felt weaned from the world and from my own reputation amongst men, willing to be despised and to be a gazing stock for the world to behold. Two days later, he writes, Had raised hopes today respecting the heathen. Oh, that God would bring in great numbers of them to Jesus Christ. I cannot but hope I shall see that glorious day. When he begins to minister to a particular group, a couple years later, he writes on July 22nd, When I waked, my soul was burdened with what seemed to be before me. I cried to God before I could get out of bed. He has just the day before witnessed a tribe of Native Americans um, engaged in their, as he calls, pagan uh, revelry. They get together and they have these powwows. And they, they dance around and they howl and they make noises and they cut themselves and they go into convulsions and they do all of this because they are worshipping these false gods, right? They are doing exactly what Romans chapter 1 says people do. They are worshipping the creation rather than the creator. He says, so he wakes up, he's in distress of the great, about the great task that was before him. I mean, how do you begin to engage that? What do you do? As soon as I was dressed, I withdrew into the woods to pour out my burdened soul to God, especially for assistance in my great work, for I could scarcely think of anything else. I enjoyed the same freedom and fervency as the last evening and did with unspeakable freedom give up myself afresh to God for life or death for all hardships. He should call me to among the heathen. I felt as if nothing could discourage me from this blessed work. I had a strong hope that God would bow the heavens and come down and do some marvelous work among the heathen. And when I was riding to the Indians three miles, my heart was continually going up to God for His presence and assistance and hoping and almost expecting that God would make this day a day of power and grace among the poor Indians. As you read his life and his diary, you see over and over that Brainerd wept. He prayed for hours and hours and hours a day that God would save these Native Americans. When was the last time we wept over the lost people in our lives? Just this past week I had a conversation um, with two girls that I work with, um, a couple ladies at work in the office at, at my school. Uh, I was just going in there to, 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 to get something and they started, they, they know I'm a, I'm a Christian and so they, 
uh, I forget even what started the conversation. They asked me a question, just some practice, some question about, um, uh, I don't remember. But anyway, we, we got on the subject of, of something. I said something, and then we got on a spiritual topic, right? And so they started asking questions about why I believe the Bible or, or what I believe about Jesus and why I believe that. And one girl claims to be an agnostic, and the other girl doesn't know what she is. And so in the midst of this conversation, I'm trying to convince them that they have a worldview. Okay, so, so, so the girl who's an agnostic says, oh, I don't believe anything, therefore I don't have a worldview. I don't see things a particular way because I don't believe anything. And I said, wait a minute. You don't see things a particular way? That in itself is a worldview. Okay? The fact that you are not sure what to believe is a filter. It is a worldview. And as it became more apparent, as I began to get more specific, and I began to talk about Jesus being Lord and rising from the dead, and that if, if that really happened, he, you owe him your life, and you need to submit to him. And as, I've been, and as I'm telling them this, they are rejecting it. And so I stop and I say, okay, you are rejecting this teaching because it doesn't fit in your worldview. Right? You have a worldview. But just this conversation, this five-minute conversation of trying to, to convince them that they think like everyone else was like pulling teeth. They're so deceived that they don't even realize that they're thinking. They can't even admit to themselves that they're thinking rationally about these things. And I mean, I left that conversation just... I mean... Not that I was to the point of Paul or Brenda, but I just left it in anguish. Like, is there hope? Like, you can't even convince people that they're, that they're able to think rationally about these things. How are you ever, how am I ever going to convince them that Jesus is Lord? I mean, I think that the reason we don't weep for the lost people in our lives is because we don't share the gospel with them. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? And when I begin to get in conversations with people and talk about spiritual things and begin to know them and understand their hearts and where they're coming from, then I can weep for them. Because you see that they're so deceived. You see that there's such a need for the penetration of the Holy Spirit. And that is their, our only hope. My only hope is not to convince them that Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't matter what evidence I put forward to them about that. They will not believe it. They will willfully suppress that truth and unrighteousness. But by the power of the Spirit, they can be changed. Which leads me to the fourth reason why we do missions. We do missions because it is the means God uses to gather His people. Look with me in Romans chapter 10. So Paul, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, unfolds for us God's electing purposes. That God is still faithful to keep his covenant to his people, right? Because remember, the Jews have rejected Christ. By and large, most Jews have rejected Christ. So that looks like God's promise to the Jews has failed. Because if the Jews reject their Messiah, and that means God's promise it means God's failed. He hasn't kept his people. He hasn't saved his people. But Paul says, no, God's word has not fallen because all who are Israel um, 
or all who claim to be Israel are not Israel, that God, in fact, has always chosen who would be his and who would not, right? So that's the argument in chapters 9. Then we get to chapter 10, and Paul tells us this, starting in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him, uh, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So we can read chapter 9 and say, okay, God's going to save who he's going to save, right? God elects people to salvation. He predestines them. Therefore, let's just sit back, enjoy our coffee and tea, because God is going to save who he's going to save no matter what we do. That's not true. We see that there is a responsibility for believers to take the gospel to the nations. Why? If God's going to save who he's going to save? Because... That's the means whereby God accomplishes his mission. God always uses human means to accomplish his eternal purposes. No one is ever saved apart from the gospel being preached to them. We see this all throughout the book of Acts, right? That even with with the story of, of Cornelius and Peter, right? God gives a vision. God's speaking to people in dreams and visions, but still... There's a need for Peter to go to Cornelius and preach the gospel to him. No one can come to faith in Christ apart from the gospel message, the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, when we read the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the preaching of the word. You have word and spirit, and both must be present for there to be new life. New life is activated and and begun when the Spirit and the Word are present. It's our responsibility to take the Word to the nations. God, by His Spirit, will take care of the rest. So, the fourth reason we do missions is because missions is the means that God uses to gather His people. God could have chosen to save His people in any way, but He has chosen to use us. The Great Commission. Go. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, commanded them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look over in chapter 11, Romans 11, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, without getting into all the details of what Paul's talking about here, the point is... All Israel will be saved. All of God's people will be saved when we take this message of the gospel to the nations. That's God's means. So the question for us is, are we involved? In fact, when we read Romans 11, we see that this plan of redemption, of choosing the Jews, and then sending Christ, and then the gospel being preached to the Gentiles, in order to make the Jews jealous so that the Jews would come back, all of this, this whole plan, is the plan of all human history. This has been the goal. This has been the plan from before the foundation of the world that God would do things this way. And that is only accomplished when we do missions. That plan of redemption that, that everything in human history is about is only accomplished when we are engaged in missionary activity. So 
We do missions because it is the means God uses to gather his people. The last reason we do missions is found in Romans 15. It's not the last reason, but it's the, the last reason I'm going to talk about today. We do missions so that God might be glorified for his mercy. This, I think, is the deepest, most foundational reason why we do missions. Let's read verse 15, or chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. For I tell you, Paul says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Who were the circumcised? Jews, right? So Christ became a servant to the Jews to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Who were the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? The fathers. So Christ comes, he becomes a servant to the Jews in order to confirm the promises given to Abraham and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes Old Testament passages one right after another to prove that this is coming, that this was foretold in the Old Testament, that God would gather the Gentiles and that they would worship the one true God just like the Jews did. And I think this gets to the heart of the Christian faith. Very foundational to why we do missions. We do missions because there are people all over the world who right now are not worshiping God. But we see that the aim of all of the universe and all of history is that God might be glorified. Right? If that's true, if everything in the world, everything in the universe is the way it is so that God might be glorified, that means the deepest reason why we take the gospel to the nations is so that those people can glorify God. It is for the glory of God that we do missions. Because we long to see God's glory manifested in the world. We long to see people taking their, finding their hope, finding their comfort in the one true and living God. Because when they do that, they are glorifying Him. They are making Him look great. They are making Him look like He is all satisfying. That's glorifying to God. The deepest reason why we do missions is for the glory of God. God's greatest concern in the universe is that he might be glorified for his mercy. Perhaps the greatest, most foundational reason why we do missions is because there are people all over the globe who right now are not glorifying God for his mercy. They will never hear about their need for a Savior. They will never hear about the provision that Christ has made for them. They will never hear about how they can be reconciled to a holy God. They will never know how to persevere through suffering and trust in the goodness of the providence of God unless someone goes to them and preaches the gospel to them. They will continue to trust in demonic spirits. They will continue to trust in superstitions. They will continue to form and fashion a God after their own image and worship and serve the creation rather than their creator unless someone goes to them and preaches the gospel to them. 
So, who will go for them? Will you go? Will we go? Will we be involved in missions? We see that these five reasons, just these five that I pulled from Romans, we could pull a dozen more probably at least just from Romans about why we do missions. These are foundational truths to the Christian faith. So why, why am I doing it this way? Why am I taking the foundational truths? It's because every one of us sitting here believes these things. And if we believe these things, we see that we must, we have no other option. We are commanded and we should be motivated to take this gospel to the nations. So, who will go? I mean, some of us here need to consider overseas missions. Some of us here need to consider how to be involved in church planting. Some of us here need to consider how we can make as much money as we possibly can so that we can fund missionaries and church plants. And how we can make as much money as we possibly can so that we can relieve suffering all over the globe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have not left us without a witness. Thank you that we have the scriptures in our own language. God, we, most of us have just multiple copies of scripture in our homes. And God, as we think this morning about why we do missions, just penetrate our hearts with the truth that God, there are there are millions of people all over the world that have no access to the scriptures. They've never heard the gospel. They have, they have no idea who Jesus is. And God, those same people will face you in judgment one day. And they will be judged. Your word is clear that they will be judged. They are under your wrath because they have rejected the knowledge of you. But God, we hold we hold the truth. We hold the gospel message in our hearts. And so God, I pray that this would move us. And that we would get off of our lazy pedestals. Our high lives. Our lives filled with luxury and, and uh, materialism. And then we would be willing to take bold risks for the gospel. And then we would be willing, God, to go wherever you send us. And God, may we never, ever believe that we are not called. You have called us. The call is crystal clear. Forgive us, God, for we, when we have deceived ourselves into thinking that we are, are just somehow meant to live a comfortable life here God, I pray that we would would wake up and we would be willing to face, as David Brainerd says, persecutions and sufferings and the howling wilderness and even death to take the gospel to the nations. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.